Reverend Schuringer and I decided to get a little specific in our Message and Miracles of Jesus series, and we have chosen to make um, the seven miracles that John uses to help us believe that Jesus is the Christ um, as the backbone for our miracle section of the series. So we'll uh, be going through the book of John and hitting those seven signs, those seven miracles that John includes. And as we do that, I want to remind you, as I did last week, that when we look at um, the miracles that are specifically in John, we want to keep a couple things in mind. First, we want to keep in mind what, G- what John says about these miracles at the end of the gospel. In John 20, verses 30 and 31, John says this, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples. Basically saying, Jesus did a lot of miracles, which are not recorded in this book. But these, the ones I included, are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. The second thing I want to bring to the forefront in order to see the true impact that John intended um, for this miracle to have on his listeners is how he introduces Jesus. And so listen again to the few very descriptive verses from John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world didn't recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. From the fullness of grace, we have received his grace, we have received one blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but God the one and only, who is at the Father's side, has made him known. So here we have the Logos, the Word, the wisdom of God made flesh, entering our human race, revealing to us what God is like. No one seems to recognize him. For who he is, he came to his own creation, but his creation didn't receive him. But for those who do receive him, the wisdom, they, they receive the wisdom of God, and they receive God himself. Last week, we looked at how um, Jesus' first miracle did not just help a wedding party who is in a very embarrassing position, although it did help a wedding party who's in a very embarrassing position, but the miracle was much more than that. More importantly, it described for for us a shift that Jesus came to bring. It described for us the shift that Jesus' message and ministry was making from law-bound religion that was represented in the water in those ceremonial cleansing pots that were used for the purification rites to make you um, clean after being unclean. It was a shift from the law-bound religion to the incredible grace of God's kingdom that was represented by the best wine at the party. Doled out 
of those purification vessels. So John continues in this old, new shift that Jesus is making in this second miracle. And if you're paying attention, that you'll notice that I'm not starting at the beginning of um, this event, but I'm starting at the end of the previous event. And uh, I want to bring this to your attention just to let you know that in the original languages, in the inspired text, there's no sentence marks. There, there's no periods or exclamation points or question marks. There's no uh, sentence breaks. There's no paragraph breaks. There's no indentations. There's no he titled headlines. That all came later. And so sometimes we can miss out on a good important connection by submitting our reading to those artificial separations. So we're intentionally starting with the end of the Samaritan woman at the well event because it's vital in helping us to understand this second miracle. Now that uh, the woman at the well is a pretty famous story. In fact, it seems like it's in every Sunday school curriculum, which if you think about it, it's kind of odd because it's really a PG-13 uh, story. It's, it's a PG-13 event where the woman at the well has been living in adultery. And she has gone through five uh, or four or five guys. The guy she's with is not her husband. And uh, she's a Samaritan woman. And Jesus finds her in the outer well. So it's noontime, and it's, it's the hottest part of the day, and she's out not in the inner well, but the outer well. And so she's an outcast. She's avoiding people. And Jesus finds her, and he uh, converses with her. And the result of that, that conversation is her conversion. She recognizes that Jesus is the Messiah. And she runs back to her village and tells everybody, and they too believe. Listen now to our text. And I'm going to pause. We're not going to read it straight through. I'm going to read and then comment and read and comment. Four thirty-nine through fifty-four. Many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. I want to stop there and call your attention to the first time where belief is talked about. It says the town, many of the Samaritans from her village, believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. So they believed because of her words. Very important. Um, let's believe in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed with them for a couple days, for two more days. And verse 41 says, and because of his words, many more became believers. All right, you might be saying, pick this up. Where are you going with this? Trust me, it's important. The second time, he's saying, many more became believers because of his words this time. And because of his words, first because of the woman's words, now because of his words, many more became believers. And then verse 30, 42, they said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard ourselves, and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. 
This is hugely important. It's no coincidence the choice of events that John chooses in, in structuring his gospel. It's no coincidence that John includes this, this little fact paragraph about how these Samaritans believe first at the woman's word about Jesus. And then even more of them believe at Jesus' own words. And it's repeated three different times. They believe because of the word. They believe because of her word. They believe because of his word. And they're Samaritans. Let that shock you for a moment. That's like saying the woman from Al-Qaeda believed. Now we think of good Samaritan. We think of warm, fuzzy thoughts. But the Samaritans were considered outcasts, scum of the earth. In fact, there's a funny story in the Bible where the religious leaders get so mad at Jesus, they run out of words, and in their rage, they yell, they spurt out the worst thing they can think of. They say, you're a demon-possessed Samaritan. It's like saying, you're a bleepity beep, bleep bleep. Luke 9, verses 52 through 54, and you don't have to turn to it. I'm just going to read it real quick. talks about the Samaritans in Samaria this way. And Jesus sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there, the Samaritans, did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. They knew he was a Jew, so they wouldn't let him in. And they had to go to a different village. Now listen to this. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Those Samaritans. Those races did not jive. There was a lot of racism between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans were once Jews that had shunned uh, much of God's law, turned back on, on a lot of his law and regulations, and intermarried with the non-Jewish people, and they were sort of this half-breed. In fact, we've, we've, uh, scholars have found in Jewish liturgy morning prayers asking God to curse the Samaritans. The Jews thought that God did not like the Samaritans. They did not keep his law. They were far from him. The Messiah wouldn't be caught dead in Samaria. So here John is very clearly saying to us, the Samaritans had no problem recognizing who the Messiah was. They did it just by hearing first the Samaritan woman's words, but then even more hearing Jesus' words. The Samaritans recognized and converted. They believed based on the words. Let's continue to our text. Verse 43. <clears throat> After two days, he left for Galilee. Okay, so he stayed there in the Samaritan village for two days, and now he's making his way back to Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had pointed out that a prophet has no honor in his own country. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. But Jesus just said that a prophet has no honor in his own country, but here we're finding out that they welcomed him. Why do you think they welcomed him? Well, hang on, the text tells us. Why? Because they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they also had been there. Now, if you want to know what did Jesus do with the Jerusalem at the Passover feast, you can turn to, to, to chapter 2, and you'll find a, um, an, a, another famous 
um, event in Jesus' life where Jesus comes into the temple and he sees all these money changers making money off helping people worship. So it's like, um, let's say we had uh, our songs in a, a foreign language here, but if you wanted the English translation, we would charge you five bucks. They would charge for um, the sac- certain sacrifices. They would charge for, um, you couldn't worship God with foreign currency. You'd have to use our currency. So if you give us five bucks, we'll let you change your offering in. And Jesus got up, really upset. He drives them out and says, you will not turn my father's house into a den of thieves. And he drives out the money changers. The people would love this. Yet even in verse two, uh, chapter 2, verse 18, some of the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Hey, if you're going to clean up God's house here, show us a sign for your authority. They didn't believe that he was the Messiah. Let's look back at our, our, our uh, passage. When he arrived in Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. Why? Because they had seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, for they had also been there. They acted, Jesus acted real favorably in their eyes, and so they welcomed him. Once more he visited Cana, that's in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son lay sick at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son, who was close to death. Now, it sounds a little cold, Jesus' response, but he's making a big point. And the outcome is favorable. Jesus says this, Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, Jesus told them, you will never believe. It's a statement to the people, you people are plural, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. You don't yet believe that I am the Messiah. You're welcoming me because I cleaned out the temple of money changers. And that's to your advantage. But it's also a statement of unbelief towards this man. Look at... Verse 47. When the man had heard that Jesus arrived in Galilee from Judah, he went to him and begged him to come and heal his son. He says, Jesus, come with me. I want to contrast this for a second, and I want to show you why this is, shows a little bit of unbelief and why... He may have thought Jesus has the potential of doing a miracle. He didn't think Jesus was the Son of God. He didn't think Jesus was the Messiah. There's another story that's very similar about a long-distance miracle that takes place in Capernaum. And uh, it's found in Luke chapter 7. And you're welcome to turn with me there. You don't have to. You can just hear the reading. But in Luke chapter 7, this event takes place. There's a, there is a centurion's servant 
whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus, okay, he heard of Jesus, there it is again, and sent elders of the Jews to, to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, this man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent his friends to him saying, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am, am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go and he goes. This one, come and he comes. This one, do this and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed. It says, Jesus was amazed. And turning to the crowd following, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel, the home of God's people. Then the man who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Very similar stories. But in our story, or so, sorry, in the Luke 7 story, there was the, uh, the Roman army captain, and he believed that Jesus had authority. He believed that Jesus was sent for, from God and had carried God's authority. And that's why he said, don't even bother coming. You can just say the word and my son, my servant will be healed. But here this Jew, this ro royal official who is a Jew, says, you have to come with me. You have to come with me. You have to come down. Now, now Cana to, to, um, to Capernaum wasn't a, a quick, hey, let's uh, jaunt over to Oak Brook Terrace. It was a little bit of way. And so Jesus says, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will never believe. But then he, does, he doesn't in, un, indulge the man's lack of faith. Very quietly, he says, you may go. Your son will live. And while he was still on the way, verse 51 says, his servants met him with the news that the boy was living. And when he inquired as to the time when his son got better, they said to him, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. Then the father realized that this was the exact time at which Jesus had said to him, your son will live. So he and all his household believed. He finally believed. He now had belief that Jesus was the Messiah, but he had to see the miracle first. The Samaritan woman believed on Jesus' words. The Samaritan village believed in Jesus' words. The Roman army captain believed based on what he heard about Jesus. The people of God would not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They thought he could do great things, but they did not recognize his authority as Messiah, the Christ, the one sent from God. And then finally, verse 54 says this. This was the second miraculous sign that Jesus performed, having come from Judea to Galilee. 
So the question begs to be asked. What does John want us to know about the second commandment? What does he want his listeners to know about Jesus? What is it revealing to us about him? How should we apply the second commandment? He starts off with the disclaimer saying at the end, at the end, of, his, uh, at the end of his gospel saying, um, only certain miracles have made this. And they're all in there for a reason because they reveal something about the Christ. And then he starts his gospel off in chapter 1 saying he's the logos, the wisdom of the universe, the wisdom of God, born into his own creation, yet his creation does not recognize him. And then John goes on to show us that the Samaritans recognized him. They weren't even the people of God. The Samaritans recognized and believed in him as the Messiah. But Jesus' own people, the Jews, the people of God did not. They wanted to see miracles. And without them, they kept missing the Messiah. Does the purpose of this passage begin to stand out yet? I had the hardest time preparing for the sermon because I always write with the big idea in mind. And the more I got close to this and meditated this on, on this passage, the more I realized that this miracle is really has a teaching built in it that is a chastisement on the people of God. In this miracle, Jesus is saying, you put your faith in me when you see me at work toward your advantage. But do you really believe I am the Messiah? Do you really believe who I, I am who I say I am? Do you believe who I am and align yourself accordingly like the Samaritans, like the Roman army captain? Or, you just, or do you just believe in what I am capable of doing? Who are we more like? I know that sometimes I have a tendency to believe that Jesus can save me from my circumstances. And I want to see that miraculous work in my life. But if I don't see that, do I still live my life sold out to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah? I think this miracle could have happened today to us, God's people, with the same message to us. Do you believe and align your life to who uh, accordingly? Do you believe who I am and align your life accordingly? Or do you just believe because you want me to round to answer your prayers? Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. He calls us to much more than just SOS prayers. He says, abide in me. Take up your cross and follow me. Sell all you have and follow me. I think the best way I could come up with to apply this was to compare two people. And in closing, I'll do that. I wanna, the first one is a fictitious person from a parable of Jesus that Jesus told. 
The second one is a real-life, actual person from the turn of the 20th century. The person from the parable comes from Luke chapter 12. And he, Jesus, told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. What a great problem to have. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And then I'll store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. This is the American dream right here. I'm going to work hard and make money. And then when my investments fill up, I'm going to buy real estate. And when my real estate fills up, I'm going to, I'm going to accumulate. And maybe we're not rich enough to accumulate, but we consume. But God said to him, the rich man, and there's very few places where you hear Jesus calling people this, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich towards God. The second person I want to compare this rich fool to is a man from the, um, who was born in the late 1800s. And uh, I, I actually studied his life pretty in depth in college. And uh, I was at a Christian conference Friday and Saturday, and his biography was reminded... Um, I, I just remembered him, and I was like, yeah. And uh, the pastor did a great job talking about, about his life. And so here, here's a little illustration. It's from C.T. Studd. Anybody remember who C.T. Studd is? Oh, this is sad. This is very, very sad. Charles Thomas Studd was one of the greatest missionaries from the 18, late 1800s, early 1900s. He, he was one of the Cambridge Seven that went and began the, the missionary movement out of um, London and that spurred on the, the student missionary movement, the Haystack movement that, that, that uh, kicked America into the missionary um, field. Well, C.T. Studd was the, father of an ex- uh, it's the son of an extremely wealthy businessman, very wealthy businessman. And he became a Christian through the ministry of Moody, in London. And so the dad tried to convert his three sons. And C.T. Studd um, confesses that, you know, I used to try to avoid my dad because he'd have the, all, the, he's always talking about Jesus and salvation. But eventually, on a 16, somewhere in, in, when he turned 16, he became a Christian. And he started growing in Christ. And he was a very athletic boy. In fact, he, turned, uh, he grew into one of the best cricket players in the world. It's just a lot like uh, Eric Liddell's story, you know, in Chariots of Fire. Well, C.T. Studd, if you were around in the 1880s, you would know C.T. Studd. He was like the Mike, Mike Ditka of his time. Everyone in, in England and wherever cricket was played knew C.T. Studd. He was that good. 
He got a call from God to become a missionary to China, and he gave it all up. And by giving it all up, I mean gave up the fame and also gave up his money. He gave all his money up. In fact, do you know why there's a Moody um, ministry today? Part of his inheritance he gave to Moody, and Moody started his ministry in America with it. He went to become a missionary to interior China. And despite his uh, physique and his athleticisms, he ended up contracting a lot of diseases and getting sick a lot. But he hung in there, and he ministered, and many people came to Christ, and ministries were birthed, and orphanages were started. And he did an incredible work in China. But it got, his sicknesses got accumulated and got to the point where he had to return to England. So he returns to England, spends three years there recuperating. Meanwhile, he's recruiting more people for the missionary service and preaching both uh, in, in Britain and in the United States. And then he feels God calling him to India. So he goes to India, to the interior of southern India, and people become Christians, and he starts ministries and orphanages. He gets sick over and over again, goes back to England to recoup again, and everybody thinks he's, he's on his last legs. He's about 50 years old now. He's had just about every disease in the book. And while he's there, by the way, he's penniless. He gave it all away. While he's there, he comes across this sign that says, Cannibals want missionaries. And he's intrigued by the sign. And so he goes to the worship service where the guy um, who authored the sign was going to be speaking. And he hears a call to minister in Africa. Now, there was a, a, a really common knowledge that uh, this, this saying that went around that a uh, Brit wouldn't last three days in interior Africa because of all the diseases, malaria, and all the uh, dangers, a Brit wouldn't last three, three days in the interior of Africa. And uh, so he's at this worship service with this guy speaking, and he, the guy gives a call to uh, service in interior Af- Africa, and C.T. Studd says, Lord, look no further. You have found your man. So he goes to his missionary society and says, I want to go to the interior of Africa. Well, they give him a couple physicals, and they say, he failed them. He said, they said, no, you can't. We won't support you. And C.T. Studd says, God is calling me. And so he prays. Folks fund him. He makes his way down to Africa, starts ministering there, starts getting more diseases. He comes down with malaria, and he hangs in there. And he does an incredible work. And thousands of people come to Christ. And he stays there for 20 years. And he, as in his 70s, he dies there in Africa. That is someone who believed that Jesus is the Messiah. That was someone who believed Jesus' words. I don't know about you, but when I hear that, those stories, Eric Liddell, C.T. Studd, many others, it just stokes the fire in me. 
on one hand, and on the other hand, it makes me gulp. Do I believe what I read? Do I believe what I hear? Has my life changed because of it? This second miracle, in contrast with the Samaritan's belief, is saying to us, do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, or do you just like the benefits, the miracles that he provides? How are we going to respond? 